his holy name. For he is a great God. Great God who is greatly to be praised. Amen. And we're going to make a decision this year to show through the fruit of our lips, through the sacrifice of praise that comes upon our lips to give our honor and the glory to God, which he so richly deserves. Amen. Amen. Bless his holy name. I ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. And we're really going to deal with verses 5 through 11, but I'm going to read the whole passage here from 1 uh, through 11, since this is part 2 of a the same message we started with four weeks ago. So Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And we ask if you found a passage that you would acknowledge it by simply saying, he's a great God. And we ask you to stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. Titus 3, 1 through 11. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves of various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. For a person who stirs up division after warning him once, then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. You've just heard the word of God. Now I ask that you will apply it to your hearts as if it was the word of God, which it is. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters, in part one of this message, as you remember a couple of weeks ago, we dealt with the first three items that Paul wanted to remind us, remind the Christians living in Crete, and also to remind us as we live here in Indianapolis. First, he wanted to remind us to show courtesy and to be submissive to the rulers and the authorities. Paul wanted to remind them to be submissive to the rulers, to the authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready to do every good work that comes upon us. Submissiveness in Christ is the willingness to yield to his authority. It means that we must humble ourselves to his direction, that we must slavishly serve him without concerns for ourselves. You know, this verb here that Paul uses, hupomenesco, the word remember. In the Greek, it is a continuous action. So really what he's saying here is keep reminding them. 
Paul instructs these Christians that they are to be subject to the civil government, indicating that such authorities are part of God's overall plan. Although we recognize biblical teaching does not endorse a blind, unquestioning obedience to the state when that state is in opposition to God's law. When that happens, then obedience is no longer required of Christians and we should refuse to adhere. The Christian citizen must be always ready to do any good work. We are to offer people something better than mere justice. We are to offer them and show them gracious gentleness. Christians are to show perfect courtesy to all people. Secondly, Paul reminded them that there was a time when they look at this world that seems out of control and people taking aberrant views to what is legitimate. He wants us to remember there was a time when we too were foolish. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 2 through 3. In which you once walked, this is a declarative statement about everyone. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, small s, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. So we are all like this at one time. We live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This scripture is simply saying that a person that denies, ignores, or neglects God is acting foolish. And they're being very unwise. But glory to God that we were delivered from our foolishness and that we were given the very wisdom of God for before God, no one is wise without God's hold upon their life. God is the one that calls us away from foolishness. Look at 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might be able to boast in the presence of God and because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that it is written let the one who boasts boast in the Lord these are some interesting comments about the human condition within the society of unbelievers and also when we were unbelievers, people who live without God. Paul includes us because we too once were foolish. Amen. Our God calls us away from foolishness and he led us to truth. Thirdly, Paul had reminded them that God, our Savior, saved us. Salvation comes from the very goodness of God. Salvation shows his deep and abiding goodness and shows the necessity for us to trust him. Salvation comes from God's mercy and his compassion. It shows his loving kindness. It shows his desire to support us. It shows his tender heart towards us. It shows that he cares for us. We see his mercy and we see that he is the one who is able to meet our needs. We see that we need salvation from God. We see our need and he sees our need that we need to be saved from sin, death, 
and condemnation. And because he sees our needs, God acts. He has mercy upon us, and he provides a way for us to be saved from sin. Look at Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Stop right there. That is your answer to anyone that you're evangelizing to that says, hey, as soon as I get it together, I'm going to church with you. You tell them it's impossible to get it together without God. You have to come to church because even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he loved us, he made us alive in Christ, and it is by grace you have been saved. No one comes in here complete. This morning we're going to look at the last two items that Paul has in his Christian gift basket for these Christians in Crete. We're going to look at the fact that he reminded them to be devoted to good works and that he reminded them to avoid foolish controversies. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time together this morning and your blessed presence. We come before you, O Lord, with bowed down heads and with uplifted hands in praise to you. We honor you. We worship you. We will give you all the glory and the praise that you so richly deserve. We come this morning confessing our sins, which are ever before us, pleading with you, O God, to create in us a clean heart and renew in us a right spirit so that we might become vessels of honor perfectly fit for your hands, O oh Master. We want to be willing tools in your hands. We want to be willing tools in the hand of the vine dresser of the vineyard. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, we want you to allow fruits to be manifested, fruits of repentance that are acceptable to you, that we might walk in your will and in your way. We thank you for yet another opportunity. I thank you for yet another opportunity to proclaim your word today. And we ask all these blessings in the marvelous, matchless, and mighty name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord, and all God's children said, Amen. New Life, if there was ever a time or ever a day in the church of Jesus Christ, that we need a word from the Lord, today is that day. For, beloved, we are living in perilous times, times where truth is being put to the test, times where the very character of the church is being challenged, times where the very eternal foundations of God's word are being fought against, not just outside of the church, but really inside of the church. A time where the culture of this nation is seeking to capture, compromise, and even conquer the church of Jesus Christ. You know, when I think about it, every day when I wake up, I think that we have re I'm looking for an ark. Because I think we return to the days of Noah, where the Bible said men sin continuously. In fact, in Genesis 6 and 50, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. Let's week, or really two weeks ago, we dealt with three of the elements that Paul has listed in this passage, and we're going to deal with the remaining two. But I want to start at verse 5, because there's something here that I think that needs to be amplified before we go into the last two elements. That text starts simply by saying, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, 
but according to his own mercy. How did he do it, Pastor? Well, he tells us by the washing and the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Now, we understand theologically that the Old Testament law was never to show us how we could save ourselves. Rather, the purpose of the law was to show us what sin was and that our only hope for salvation could be found in the gracious promises of God. Look at Galatians 3, 10 through 14. Let's unpack this. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul gives us the standard here from the outset. Only those who can completely, consistently, and comprehensively follow every demand that is found in the book of the law and fulfill them, they are the ones that can only be saved by the law. The history of Israel's human experience demonstrates that we all fall short of the demands of God. And therefore, we're all under the curse because no one is able to keep every commandment listed in the law. Paul continues, look at verse 11, really 11 through 14. Now it is evident that no one is just justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We see here the Old Testament itself pointing out that righteousness cannot be achieved through the law. Habakkuk 2 and 4 illustrates to us when it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. So someone that thinks they adhere to the law, is they're conceited in themselves. Their soul is puffed up because we recognize not everything that's in us is upright. But the righteousness, or rather the righteous, shall live by faith. Brothers and sisters, I know this is speaking about the soul of Babylon. It's speaking about the nation of Babylon. It's speaking probably primarily about the king of Babylon. But you see, those traits don't change. A proud person is one who relies on themselves, where a righteous person relies on God. This whole phrase, puffed up, refers to the fact that it couldn't include you and I. It's the way we think. If we live, if we think we can live, breathe, and have our being apart from God, we have lost our mind. It takes faith and trust to become a Christian. It takes faith to wait patiently for God's plan to unfold. God is not on our timeline. He's not on our time clock. And it takes faith to deny oneself, to deny what we desire, and to rely on God. But those who are righteous believe they may not understand the plan as it unfolds, but it believes that God has the ability to accomplish the plan. This kind of faith that Habakkuk is describing here, and really it goes through all of the New Testament, says that if we continue to trust in God and to cling to his promises, even in our darkest days, that he will deliver. Think about it yourself. Have you ever had to cling 
to the promise of God in the midst of your storm? Have you ever been at the end of your rope, but not at the end of your hope? Have you had to tie a knot in that hope and just hang on and believe that we need to be still for he is God? Leviticus 18 and 5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So it's important for us to recognize that Paul is leading us away from the curse and showing us that Jesus took the curse upon himself. That the burden of total adherence to the law, that the divine curse because of all of our failures has been completely lifted, completely removed by the work of Christ on the cross. Because of Christ Jesus' substitutionary, sacrificial, once-for-all work on the cross, for those of us who by faith believe in him, the curse has been broken and we have been healed. The fact that Christ has hung on a tree means that we never will. Isaiah 44 and 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessings upon your descendants. Why were these people thirsty? Why were they dry? Because of their disobedience to God. When you feel thirsty, when you feel dry, when you feel far away from God, is it not because of your disobedience to him? When you fail to hear or you think you fail to hear that still small voice because God is always speaking, doesn't mean that God has stopped talking. It means that he now is speaking to you in whispers. And when somebody whispers to you, what are they doing? They're asking you to come closer to them so you might hear what they have to say to you. Salvation cannot be attained by suppressing our sinful acts. Salvation cannot be attained by doing more righteous acts than sinful acts. Salvation cannot be attained by living a better life in comparison to others. The life we're supposed to live is in comparison to Christ. He's the standard. Salvation can only be obtained effectively by dealing with our sinful nature, which requires in us a new birth. John chapter 3, verses 3 through 18 says this, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, capital S, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Then he gives him a further illustration and really a further definition. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit, capital S, is Spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Then he shows you how mysterious this whole idea of being born again is and how being born again has as much to do with your efforts as your initial birth had to do with your efforts. You were acted upon in your initial birth. You are acted upon in your spiritual rebirth. Look what he says. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, capital S. So what does this mean, Pastor? 
Being born again is a transference from being born in Adam to now being born in Christ so that you may become a new creation. These metaphors for salvation should indicate to us a radical change, a change in heart that can only be accomplished by God alone. I think Titus gives us a strong, clear, precise statement concerning the basis of salvation. And I think Paul wants to eliminate any confusion that could be in the minds of the Cretans here that it is necessary in a pagan world to be reborn again. C.H. Spurgeon once said this, works of righteousness are the fruit of salvation. And the root must come before the fruit. The Lord saves his people out of clear, unmixed, undiluted mercy and grace and for no other reason. Regeneration means we are regenerated by being given new life from the Holy Spirit, thus we are born again. To be renewed and to be revived, revived is to be spiritually reborn or converted. And this is the part that really challenges me sometimes with Christians that behavior, their behavior does not exhibit that there has been any radical change in their heart. That maybe they're still on a journey. They have come towards Christ, but they haven't been converted by Christ. Conversion is a radical change in a person's life. In fact, it is God's saving action through Jesus Christ and your behavior, not for righteousness sake, but your behavior changes that shows that there's some work in your life that God is going to bring to fruition. Philippians 1 and 6. And look how definite Paul makes this claim. And I am sure of this. That he, personal pronoun, refers to God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Your life should show that something's working in you. Something's happening. There's some expansion. There's some growth. There's a narrowing of the mind. There's a decision to Deny yourself and to deal with the very will and way of God. Paul continues when he says he saved us through the washing and the rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Washing. Washing is an activity of the Holy Spirit. Washing, listen to me, involves the simultaneous work of rebirth and renewal. That is what makes us a new creature. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This has to be an internal, intensive, in-depth change in you. It's a process which began when we accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Paul continues here in Titus 3 and 6 when he says, whom he poured out, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. And I, I want you to look at this and not miss the reference to each person of the Trinity in this passage. God poured out the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. This idea of pouring out, this description echoes the same coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The same thing that we, we read in our congregational 
uh, reading this morning, Joel uh, 2 and 28. These additional words he puts here on us indicates that the pouring out of the Holy Spirit is not limited to a historic event at Pentecost, but rather it is shared with everyone who becomes a believer. And then he puts in this term, very descriptive, generously, suggesting that the Holy Spirit is totally sufficient for the needs of every believer. You just don't get a sampling. You get everything you need. This provides a contrast for us when we look at the Old Testament and we look how the Holy Spirit demonstrates himself in the New Testament. This genuine and generous outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a direct result of the work of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Look at John 14, 16 through 17. Look at what he says. And I will ask the Father, and he will give to you. Stop there. And I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper. He's been with them now three and a half years of ministry, and he had promised that he would never leave them nor forsake them. But at the beginning of this chapter 14, he tells them not to believe in God, but also believe in him. He tells them that he's going away. He's going back to his father. He doesn't want them to feel like he's leaving them, that he's already promised that I will be with you always, even to the end of this age. And now he clearly tells them, I'm going to send you another helper, a paraclete, an advocate to be with you forever, even the spirit, capital S, of truth. And you gotta, you got to see this next, these next words. Whom the world cannot receive. You are quarreling, you're having controversies, you're arguing with people who don't have the Holy Spirit. They have no idea what you're talking about. Don't argue with them. Pray for them. The world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Never forget that we are truly blessed because we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul goes on in verse 7, he says, He refers to Jesus Christ, our Savior. And then he gives what is called, uh, there's a henna clause. A henna clause is a so that clause. That's what henna means, okay? And let's unpack what he's talking about here in 7. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's break it down. Having become, or rather having become justified by his grace, it takes us back to five, and it makes us remember that he has saved us. Then he puts in the term justified that expresses to us our salvation that has been given to us. We recognize why we need salvation. Romans 3, 20. 3 through 24 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Then he says, by his grace. And when he says by his grace, personal pronoun his is referring to God's grace, which is the basis of all Christian salvation. So this leads us to the term, the henna clause, so what? So what? Expresses for us the goal, the purpose, the result of our salvation. Listen, so that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We're heirs, we're children, we're sons and daughters of God. Romans 8:17 says, "And if children, then heirs, 
with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Are you anxious to suffer with him? Are you anxious to suffer with him? Because if you don't, you won't reign with him. Jesus clearly says if the world hated him, it's going to hate you. Jesus clearly, James clearly says that you cannot be a friend with this world. You would, if you are, you're an enemy with God. I mean, there's a soteriological aspect of this passage and an eschatological aspect, uh, aspect, aspect of this passage because one shows the salvation, you know, so, uh, so, uh, shows the salvation of God through Jesus Christ, and the other shows what the last things. He saved us so that we might become heirs. Being an heir, all believers are still waiting the final redemption and the full realization of eternal life. We talked about it this morning, and John talks about it all through his Gospels, that eternal life and salvation is a right now but not yet proposition. The moment you accept Jesus Christ, you have eternal life, but it's not been fulfilled till you walk through the valley of the shadow of death and come out on the other side unscathed because God is with you. His staff protects you. Christians have become the possessors of a guaranteed future. That is the hope of eternal life. So Paul goes on to remind us that we need to devote ourselves to good works. He starts off, this is a trustworthy saying. And he's really making a strong theological statement here when he deals with the fact, and I want you to look at, look at Titus 3, uh, 8b. When he's telling Titus, Paul is, I want you to insist on these things. Paul did not limit these things to everything that he's listed from verse 3 to 7. But he included what he started with back up in verse 1. And he has a deep desire here, and he's insisting that these things be brought forth confidently because these things speak volumes. Go back to Titus, go to Titus 2.15. It's similar, but it's a different directive. Look at the Titus 2.15. To declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. You see here there's a sense of urgency as well as a need to encourage Titus because he's saying, don't let anyone disregard you. Don't ever let anyone look down on you, okay? And then he goes back in 3.8, and he's telling them to insist on these things. Then look after that. Look at uh, 3.8c. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. He is connecting what you understand theologically to how you live in reality. Your Christian behavior should result in good works for those who trust God through his word. Those who trust God through the preaching of his word and trust those who have been entrusted with his word. Here, he tell, he's telling us to be careful Basically, he's saying, pay close attention. Pay close attention that you devote yourselves to good works. Pay close attention that you devote yourselves to good works, that you will become like the one whom you have trusted in. And then look at Titus 3, 8 and D. These things are excellent and profitable for people. You know, he is saying, he, he broadens it out. He's been focused 
narrowly on the Christians, but then he broadens it out that the good works that you are devoting yourselves to are profitable to you, but also to all people. Man, that's a statement. Again, you're not just doing good works so that God will say, well, they're good. No, you're doing good works that the ministry of God goes out to others and might draw them in. And you say, well, Pastor, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I I don't know how I'm not prepared for good works. Well, I'm sorry, but that's a lie. Look at Ephesians 2 and 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared us when? Beforehand, so that we might what? Walk in them. You're just not doing it because you don't want to do it. You don't want to follow his will and his way. He, Paul has already told us in Ephesians that he's prepared, he's given us every gift we need in Christ Jesus. You just got to plug yourself back in. If you can't do it, you because you have taken yourself away from your power source. Look at verses 9 through 11. He reminds them to avoid foolish controversies. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time, and after that have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped, he is sinful, he is self-condemned. Now Paul, after giving us an eloquent summary of the gospel and the gospel's inherent motivation to promote the profitability of good works, okay? Now he turns around and he tells Titus what is unprofitable. And that's the works of these false teachers, right? And then he's going to use this blessed spiritual conjunction, but. You know, every time you see but in the Bible, you know, we need one day need to do a sermon just on the buts in the Bible. You know, it's something else. He's now telling him that he can only receive unprofitable results from these false teachers. He says, I want you to avoid foolish controversies. Avoid arguments about genealogy. Avoid quarrels about the law. They are unprofitable and useless. You're wasting your time. Time that could be given to God. Look at Titus 1, 10 through 12. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Stop right there. Paul is saying here that there are many rebellious, unrighteous, unruly people who try to entangle you, take you off track in controversies and genealogies and arguments about the law. These people are nothing more than mis driven by the wind. They're nothing more than waterless springs that promise to bring you Water for your thirsty need of God. They promise life, but they only bring death. Then he goes on, going back to the passage. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching uh, for shameful gain what they ought not teach. Stop there. Paul says there's a basic motive behind these false teachers. They're teaching for shameful gain. They're preaching and teaching not for the glory of God, but for the gathering for their greedy gain. Then this passage ends with these words. 
one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own. I love that. One of the Cretans. He said, I'm, Paul said, I'm not talking about him. I'm not making this statement. But one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said this. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. He said, one of their prophets says this about them. So you want to imitate them? You can say the same thing about the world. You want to imitate the world? You want to imitate unbelievers so they can welcome you? Look at uh, Titus 1, 13 through 16. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Man, did you not see that this week? To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. I think it's interesting that in this particular passage, he is saying to rebuke them sharply. He wants to restore them back to sound doctrine. He's dealing here with the heresies of the Judaizers who clearly threaten the heart of the gospel. They threaten the true nature of salvation or the true nature of understanding salvation. They threaten the true teaching about Jesus Christ. And as a, as a threat here that desires or a threat here that brings on much urgency, but Paul thinks that there is still time that they can be retrained, they can be restored, they can be responding or be responded to in a way that will lead them to truth. But then he tells us in our situation to avoid divisive discussions or debates. Don't even entertain them with ungodly people. They have nothing to do with them if restoration has failed after the second warning. He's making it clear that such behavior would not be tolerated. 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. That is the hardest part of this. Patiently enduring evil. Evil has its agenda. We have our agenda. We have to patiently endure evil even as we fight collectively against it, understanding that evil looks like it's, it, it trumps us, but we win in the end. You have to keep those two thoughts at the same time. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. You are never going to be able to bring anyone to your side by winning an argument. Because most people, I mean, really, an argument is not a negative thing if you follow the principles of argumentation, okay? But most people don't understand those. So if you're just trying to be, try to one-up them or something, then you're going to leave them, they're going to stop listening. You want to patiently and lovingly show them the fallacy of their argument so that you might lead them to truth. Listen to what it says in here. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of truth. So who has to lead them to the knowledge of truth? And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So again, 
when we're dealing with those who promote false teaching, he's telling Titus, warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. Then have nothing to do with him. Because just like he speaks of, I think it's in Galatians 5 and 20, that these battles of the flesh, these deeds of the flesh, are factions. But as we've shared with you several times, every time God builds a sanctuary, Satan opens a chapel. And you're going to always have weeds with the tares. In fact, Peter, make, or not Peter, but Paul makes it even more specific in 1 Corinthians. He tells us that there will be factions in the church that will prove that you are genuine. Look at 1 Corinthians 11, 18 through 19. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. God's providential direction of the church of Jesus Christ is going to allow for some controversy. It's going to allow for some weeds that will show the genuine spiritual quality and maturity of individual members so that they may be known, they may be recognized, they may be tested, they might be approved. How do you test metal without putting it in the fire? How do you test an argument without having to defend it? What does Peter say? You are, you should be ready to give a hope to anyone who asks you a reason for your hope to anyone that asks you. So even though we recognize that def destructive, divisive behavior should not be allowed, we understand that we have to deal with it patiently. Divisions within the church result in believers becoming confused, frustrated, angry, and hurt. They become ineffective in ministering to one another. And if they come, if they come ineffective to ministering to one another, they're totally ineffective to ministering to a lost world. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the good works should care to be characteristic of genuine Christians. Paul said, have nothing more to do with them. Basically, Paul is saying, any more efforts with this person is a waste of good stewardship. I, I can't tell you where that line is. Because every time I try to make it, I think about how long God tolerated me before I got half of it. But I think the Lord will reveal in your heart that you have planted or you have watered, but he needs to give the increase here. That needs to be a transference on. He concludes with a verse that is misunderstood, but, you know, he's speaking again to these false teachers. And it really gives you an understanding of why he's saying he stopped he is stopping his engagement with these people because it's a poor investment of his stewardship. Look what he says in 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. He's warped. Literally, he's off track. Have you, I mean, this is Indiana. I know it's happened to you. Have you ever had a warped door in your house because right now it's supposed to be cold and it's warm and uh, you know it's contracted and, and now it's warped you can't close it so he's saying that this person is warped they're off track and then he's saying they're sinful but he's saying that not everybody is sinful but they are continuously sinful 
they continue to sin and sin and sin. And because of that, he can make the last statement true. They are self-condemned. They refuse correction. They are a person that is factious. They participate in their own condemnation because they are without excuse. They reject sound doctrine. They reject sound teaching. They reject wanting to walk the narrow path and they embrace the wide path. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Watch, don't be attracted to a crowd. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I don't know how many times I've been called narrow-minded. And now I embrace it because I just, you know, it's really hard to be overly open-minded and still stay within the parameters of this. It's not just being narrow-minded. It's what narrows your mind. And it is a word of God that should constrain it, that should direct it, that should show the path that leads to his righteousness. You know, earlier I referred to something without really saying it, thinking that most of you knew what I was talking about, but for the rest of you who didn't. This week, or last week, the third largest Protestant denomination is going to split over same-sex marriage and whether churches can have homosexual clergy. The United Methodists. Now, the Presbyterians should be the second largest Protestant denomination They were the third Protestant denomination. And every other Protestant denomination outside of the SBC has caved into this. If you are basing what Christianity teaches in the Bible, we are not to hate people who have different understandings or aberrant lifestyles, but we have to operate in what the Bible clearly teaches. There's no evolution that happens in here. God is a being that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He hasn't changed his mind. If he's changed his mind, he's going to have to go back and, and repent to Sodom and Gomorrah. And if the church of Jesus Christ, I mean, I told you this, those of you who have been here, the 15 years I've been here, I told you this would be the defining act of the true church of Jesus Christ before it's over. And it's coming down the pike. We need to pray for the United Methodists. I'm horrified that they actually ask those who were Bible-believing to leave, and they would give them money to start their own denomination. $25 million. And I'm like, wait a minute, who built this denomination? Those Bible-believing people? If anybody needs to leave, you need to leave. Here's your check. But, you know... Guys, you're going to have to hold on. You're going to have to be strong. You're going to have to believe what the Word says. You're going to have to risk being called antiquated or discriminatory or whatever euphemism they come up with you to try to cower you into coming to their side. But this is not what the Bible teaches. 
We are to love, not discriminate. We are to share the gospel with everyone who would hear. We are to pray that their hearts are changed and their behaviors are constrained to what Scripture says. But we are not to give in to it. Everyone, including this one with the robe on, comes in here a sinner looking to be saved by grace. Everyone in here, includes this one with the robe, has a past. Lived a life that was ungodly and unlike the qualities that we're asking for or proclaiming here. But you can't stay that way in here. Come on in. But we're not going to celebrate it and we're most not going to allow you to stay in it. That Jesus said, come to me all you who are heavy and burdened, and I will give you rest. But he doesn't say he's going to allow you to stay that way. Conversion requires change. Conversion requires conformity to the will of Christ. Conformity requires denying myself. Okay, if I have a propensity for that lifestyle, then I need to deny myself. Hey, I like women, okay? I've been married 43 years. Had to deny myself 43 years ago. You deny yourself. God gave you one. Do the best you can here. At least you got one, you know. It's just, man, I'm telling you, we, we, we got to get this right. Or we're going we're gonna to see some serious problems in the church. But let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love you and praise you. We thank you for all that you're doing in the minute and hour. We're not afraid. We don't doubt. We know that you're going to work it out. We don't know how you're going to do it, but we trust the end of the story. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all and all God's children said amen.